everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Extremely excited to get going on this episode today. Everyone has been talking about New York and the New York market, which is finally, seemingly, on the road to opening a lot of additional dispensaries. Join with me today. I have Bishop Mitchell Taylor, who is the co-founder and CEO of Urban Upbound, which we'll talk about. And Urban Upbound is now opening a dispensary called Urban Weeds right in Queens. Bishop and I have been working together for, gosh, I think it's only been a month, but it, it feels like longer. So Bishop, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Carson, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So excited. So let's just take a moment to talk about you as well as talk about Urban Upbound. Can you tell us about a little bit about yourself and why you started Urban Upbound and what Urban Upbound stands for and what you all do? Yeah, well, I'm a preacher's kid. My dad um, is a pastor, and he started his ministry in Long Island City in 1961, right across the street from the largest public housing development in the country, Queensbridge Houses. And um, his ministry was always had a socioeconomic bent. So it not only was it spiritual, but it was really helping people with their social and economic situations and, you know, moving people, you know, from public housing to home ownership, doing that without all of the conventional tools and assistant things that we have today. He was just doing that in his own indigenous way and really helping people move, you know, from poverty into prosperity. Um, of course, when I came uh, back to work with my dad uh, as a young man at that time, 30, well, 40 years ago, uh, I really wanted to really put something together that could really address the mammoth issues that exist in public housing neighborhoods. And uh, maybe your viewers don't know this, but if you're looking for the neediest New Yorkers, all you have to do is go to public housing. The average income in public housing is $22,000 a year. 46.9% is a working population. The other part of that population is on some form of welfare or some form of disability or social security or such alike. Another fun fact, um, 3% of the residents that live in public housing over the age of 25 have a bachelor degree. So that kind wow. of gives you an idea of the the academic picture in public housing neighborhoods. And so we wanted to create a movement, and we did 20 years ago, uh, that could um, break cycles of poverty in public housing neighborhoods by giving residents the tools and resources for economic mobility and self-sufficiency. Now, we wanted to do this a different way. You know, historically in poor neighborhoods, you know, folks, uh, when they start initiatives, they, they bring initiatives in from the top down, from the outside in. Those don't last very long. They're not sustainable. Uh, so we wanted to create something from the inside out and from the bottom up. And so we began organizing all the social networks that exist in public housing neighborhoods, your resident leaders, your religious leaders, your business leaders. And we wanted to figure out how we could give people not a handout, but a hand up and a foot in the door. And so we created Urban Up Out. So tell us, this is 20 years ago now, you created Urban Upbound. How did you tactically go about 
doing this. And can you talk to us about some of the programs and some of the ways that you're going about achieving this mission now, now 20 years in? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So uh, one of the things that we did was we there in Queensbridge houses alone, there are 96 buildings in a six block radius, 3,122 apartments in wow. this development, over 9,000 leaseholders, probably 18,000 people live there. OK, um, when you think about that and when you think about object poverty and people that are living in poverty, uh, you have to think about how do you make the population a part of the solution? And so what we did was we conducted lobby meetings in all 96 buildings in public housing, asking them what do they feel is needed to make their lives better? Uh, would you be willing to lead the initiative that you recommend? And you know, what do you think is the most pressing issue that you're facing living in public housing? Well, needless to say, uh, with those three questions and the surveys that we uh, administered, we collected about 4,000 or so surveys. And from those surveys and those lobby meetings, we were able to shake out the model that we're operating now. And that is business development that's helping entrepreneurs and folks on the ground start their own businesses, enhance current businesses, and create cooperative, worker cooperative models, which we've done about 16 already. And then there's career development. Uh, that's um, soft skills, hard skills, training, placement, retention, and advancement. Once we get you on the job, we don't want you staying in that position. We want to figure out the way to advance you. And it may be on that job or it may be in another job. Uh, second part is one-on-one -on -one financial counseling. Bill Clinton said rich people have financial counseling, but poor people actually need them. And so after that stomp speech that I did all across the city and around the country, I finally got approached from some administrators in the city of New York. And they said, Bishop, please tell us about this one-on-one -on -one financial counseling. Long story short, the city adopted our model. And now today we have over 30 partners that are administering one-on-one -on -one financial advisement uh, to poor people around the city. And that is all because of the work that we started here at Urban Upbound. Then, fourthly, is youth development, both academic and vocational. Uh, getting kids through high school to college and through college and to their careers. Uh, and then we're the number one tax preparer. My dad said to me before he died, he said, two things are sure, death and taxes. And I thought about that. I said, wow, I wonder if I could use tax preparation as a tool to evangelize or to market using a secular term, right? And so I did that. So we partnered with a group that does free tax preparation here in New York. This was 20 years ago. And we did, we, we became a, a satellite site and we did 81 returns. Whoa. And from those 81 returns, those folks got back, I think, $240,000 in EITC returns and whatnot. And I thought that we saved the world. And so we doubled down because, see, when you do taxes for people, you get all the information, what their name is, where they live at, how many children they have, family composition. And that gives us an opportunity to offer to them services that we have on deck. So... Tax preparation for us now is like one of our biggest programs. 20 years later, we're almost a half a billion dollars in returns to people on the ground. 
And uh, we're the number one tax preparer in the city and number four in the United States of America. And the IRS has us listed on their portal as the go-to organization for tough tax returns. Because we don't just do taxes for free for people, individuals, but we do it for businesses and gig workers, which is a very important service. And that's a very complicated thing. And finally, I'll say about tax prep, when the pandemic hit, the IRS asked us what we consider doing virtual tax preparation for all 50 states. And we do. And we are also the number one tax trainer for the IRS in the VITA program in setting up new sites around the country. Then uh, the Urban Upbound Federal Credit Union, another tease that my dad gave me. He said, you'll never be able to make, make sustainable change unless you own money. I said, what you talking about, Willis? He said, you have to open up your own bank. And, uh, and so we did. Uh, we started with the Urban Upbound Federal Credit Union. And then finally, the seventh silo is the Urban Upbound Mental Health Department. And that's a soft touch for people that are, you know, struggling with employment, struggling with finance, struggling with family, and they need someone to talk to. And so it's just that soft touch before they get to the ledge. And so for us, none of those things, if they stood individually, have novelty. But when you can comprehensively integrate them on campuses, it becomes magical. Now, I'll say this last thing. One of our objectives was this. We are a nonprofit for profit. We are very entrepreneurial, and we, we like to model that entrepreneurial spirit. And so we can't tell people in public housing to be entrepreneurs, to open businesses, to be the best that you can be if we're not modeling that. And so our objective from the beginning was to create streams of funding, unconventional streams of funding that will reduce our dependency on conventional philanthropy, not eradicate it, just reduce it. And so, and that's in the form of opening businesses that are owned and operated by Urban Upbound. Which we're going to, which leads us to um, the dispensary. One thing I wanted to unpack a little bit, we have a lot of people that listen to our show that are entrepreneurs and a lot of people that are starting cannabis businesses or technology businesses. And one of the things that you said that I really loved was back in the early, early days when you were starting, I mean, you just listed seven incredible programs that you've rolled out from uh, business development, helping entrepreneurs open business to career development, one-on-one -on -one financial counseling, tax returns, youth development, uh, I mean, a, a bank for crying out loud, you know, and so I think people listen to that and they think like, oh my gosh, these people have done so much. How, how could I ever achieve that? And I go back to the thing that you said in the beginning, which was you started off by doing lobby meetings and uh, asking the people, you know, what are the problems that you're facing, doing surveys. And that's how when I think about how my business started or all my friends who are entrepreneurs' businesses started, it starts with talking to, in theory, customers. In your case, the people that you would be servicing. Figuring out what the problem is, listening to problems and identifying it. And so I just wanted to pull that out because a lot of people that want to start businesses, I think sometimes they start with the solution versus starting with the problem. And so you're a perfect example of literally going into lobbies, having people come down from their apartment and asking them, how can we support you? And it sounds like to me throughout your journey, that's just what you've continued doing. People are struggling to do their tax returns. 
people don't have financial counseling, see a problem, solve a problem. Can you talk about, you know, just the concept of see a problem, solve a problem and how that served your organization well over the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, living in living in and around public housing all my life. I don't live in public housing now. Um, but, you know, I had a chance to not only uh, see it, but experience it. And I tell people all the time, it's very hard to express what you have not experienced. And um, and I think that we, you know, I, I have a PhD. I've been to school. I have a PhD. It's called a public housing degree. Okay. And with, with that degree, you know, along with my other degrees, this is probably the most important degree because it's a degree that I got from the public and from my personal experience. And if you were to ask me 20 years ago, will we be here today? We own a bank. We, we're starting the second branch of our uh, Urban Upbound Federal Credit Union on Steinway Street. We're going to be banking cannabis. Uh, you know, if, if you would ask me if we had if we had seven or eight brick and mortar locations around the five boroughs of New York City, then I would say no. You know, 31 satellites around, I would say no. You know, I don't know how, you know, I'm, I'm, I just say that we're blessed, you know, and I, you know, we saw a need. We saw a need and we decided to make a difference, to not just talk about it but to talk to other people about it. And if they saw the need and recognized the need and even made a suggestion, then my second question would be, how can I help you bring your suggestion to a reality? And so, you know, and let me share this with you too as well. Unfortunately, in black and brown communities, in low-income communities that are predominantly black and brown, um, in our context, a lot of your best and brightest people wind up recognizing the mammoth problems that exist where they've grown up and opposed to going to school, um, you know, starting a career, starting a business and becoming a millionaire, multimillionaire, and then coming back and say, okay, now how can I change the world? You know, um, we do it a little bit differently. You know, the needs are so magnanimous and so in your face until, you know, we just start automatically with no money, with no resources, trying to deal with the problem. Opposed to build the business, make some money, and then with influence, wealth, and power, we can change the world. But oftentimes, the best and the brightest are starting out changing the world without those resources. And so, and that's what you see in Urban Upbound today, you know, and I guess I, listen, here it is now, I've been pastoring, and this is a, a weird conundrum, but for 36 years. So this is my 36 year pastoring. And so it's a long time to be in community service, long time to hear, you know, the hearts and the heart throbs and the pains of other people. And so, you know, I, I've lived that. And I said that to say, I'm looking back now 36 years. And one thing, when I started out, I was an itinerant speaker. I traveled all across the country speaking in some of the largest churches and ministries and conferences around the United States and internationally. And when I came back home, you know, I was a wonder around the world, but 
when I came back home, I didn't really have much infrastructure. And I said to myself, I said, you know what? I better stop because I don't want to get 35 years down the road. And people say, well, what the hell did he do all the time? And I say, oh, yeah, I traveled around and I spoke at conferences. What is that? And so that's why I stopped and I said, I have to make a difference in my community. And listen, I, I could have gone on to work for Goldman Sachs or any other hedge fund. I've had so many different offers of people that said, man, you should, I mean, for years they've been trying to get me into the secular world to, 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 to do what I do. And I've dedicated my life to this. And so, you know, it's, it's a different type of thing. And do I regret it? No, I don't regret it at all. I, you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to help people, assist people to assist themselves. And, and I want to get, by the way, we, we could do an entire episode on just you and Urban Upbound because there's so much more to unpack, but I do want to get to Urban Weeds, which gets to, you know, the next, the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast and how we know each other. So part of what you said was that, you know, you're, you're modeling entrepreneurialism and you're, you are all entrepreneurs. And by the way, in just working with you over the last month, I feel like you're just such a classic entrepreneur. It's like, oh, we need to get some paint. Someone go to Home Depot. And it's like, we're going to open the store in two weeks. Of course, we'll find a bud tent. We'll find the bud tenders. We'll find the people like just, it's been so fun to work with you because it's just like working with another crazy entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> but uh, let talk to me about how you decided that the next business that you would start would be in cannabis and how you went about navigating the cannabis industry because it's extremely hard and unique, especially in New York, in New York. Well, you know, my, you know, uh, my team had, you know, we, we've been looking at, again, looking at ways and means to reduce our dependency on conventional philanthropy and be able to make money for the organization and backfill our programs. So we don't have to pass the cup all the time or that, that not that much. Um, and so when the cannabis market started opening up around the country and we started hearing the buzz that cannabis would open up in New York, you know, and then the thought that they were saying, well, we're going to try to fashion this licensure, this legalization to benefit people that have been impacted by the war on drugs the most. And I thought that was fabulous. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it, they, I've heard this same rhetoric in other markets and whatnot. And to hear it in New York was like, wow. And so um, $40 billion market, um, how do you get into it? What do you do? And so I, I watched it for about five years as it was evolving. And uh, as we got closer to it, uh, I started just dibbling and dabbling in it. I, I started a consultancy um, and uh, that I thought, I thought that I really didn't think that, you know, we were going to open a dispensary per se for urban upbound 
at first. I thought maybe I was just going to just do some consulting and then we were going to do a training thing because Urban Upbound is about training and yep. and resourcing folks and what. So we want to do a seed to sales, you know, cannabis training program, everything from this to that and everything like that. And then finally I said, you know what? And then I heard them say that they're going to be doing some deference to nonprofits. I said, nonprofits? I said, we we a nonprofit. <laughs> so, and that's how it all began. When I heard that, then I began meeting with legislators and just kind of picking people's mind before the even license was even, before the OCM was even created. You know, we were having these conversations with shakers and movers and people that, you know, so we can just educate ourselves and just find out what's the pathology, what's the direction that people are taking. And so getting emulsified in that just kind of positioned us organically. And so when the application dropped, I said, you know what? What the hell? Let's go for it. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so we were already representing three other clients that oh, were going wanted, for like applications. Consulting. Like you were, you were like consulting with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just consulting them to help them because, you know, I have relationships and yep. the reason why my consultancy is very viable in New York is because relationship is the currency of life. Yep. It fits in with one of your products that you offer of business development, helping people start their own companies. So that was the first thing that exactly. we talked about. So, so it fits. Yeah, it fits. And so, yeah, so we got into the race and we just happened to have a board member that, uh, her husband was a big time marijuana dealer. And mm. she, Francis said she didn't know that he was a big time marijuana dealer. And uh, I don't know how she didn't know, but she said she didn't know. And so they came in and raided their house and they caught, they, they, they took 30 pounds of weed out of the house, 30 pounds. And they mm -hmm. arrested her husband and they arrested her and charged both of them with the possession of cannabis. Because isn't one of the require wasn't one of the re requirements you had to have been previously yes. convicted? Right. Can you explain that to the to the listeners because they might not know? Yeah. So there was a, the requirement that the OCM had was that in order to be a card licensed applicant, you had to have a couple of things. Number one, you had to be you had to have a member on your board that was justice involved, meaning that they had a cannabis arrest a cannabis arrest. And then another thing they threw in there, I don't know why they threw this in there, that you had to have uh 10% interest in or, or run a business for, you know, a couple of years or some crap like that, whatever the case may be. This was the one that I thought was very interesting. And you had to have run a retail business profitably. Right. So you right. had to That's have it. been arrested. You had to have been arrested for cannabis and, and run a legitimate business. And run a legitimate business. So there's the, the pool of people out there. I don't. I it's. I cannot believe that. Then you're. What are the chances that you find this out about your board member? Right. And and here we are. And we are we're perfect. Perfect. Because I mean we are we are perfect for it because she doesn't have any gun. She don't have no gun charges. She don't have no no heroin charges. And a lot of the guys and girls that were applying for licensure, they had cannabis, but they also had something else. No one has cannabis by itself. Very few people have cannabis by itself. And if you had a gun charge with it, you, you're, you're, I think you're, you're out. You can't, you can't apply. So, you know, which we is probably maybe, maybe a, maybe a good thing. You know, we don't know. I don't know that a bunch of people with gun charges. 
Right. Well, I mean, but hit no, no, no. But I'm, I don't, I don't want to say what. I'll stay, I'll stay neutral on that because the problem is, you know, when you are in the, the, the when you are in this business, you know what I mean, and 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 you're making this a, you're making this a pre qualification. Right. That I had to be in the business before. Well, let me share something with you. Being in the business yeah, maybe, means yeah. being able to That's protect myself. That's a good point. Being able to protect myself, okay? And and anybody that's watching that thinks that the cannabis business before it was even thought about being legalized around the states here was a safe, clean business, you are mistaken. Good it point. Might be a, it might be a clean high if you're smoking clean cannabis and credible cannabis from credible producers and growers, but it's certainly not a clean business. And we can see that now, you know, from all of the illegal dispensaries that are being robbed. Right. The reason why they're being robbed is because they're illegal. Who are you going to tell when I walk into your store and with a gun and two of my friends and I take $100,000 from you and you're illegal, you're not licensed? Right. You have nowhere to go. So that, that's a good that's a good point. But regardless, this was what the you know, this was the requirements and you met it spot on. So talk. So then you apply. You're like, we are the perfect fit for this. So you go and apply. When did you find out that you won? So we found out that we won last November. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be like a plug and play, like what we do all the time at Urban Upbound. We do what I call the urban hustle. We've built out campuses all over the city, so this was not going to be hard for us. But I didn't realize that we had to find a location. We had to jump through all these hoops prior to getting to wherever. And so we, you know, we went, we went hard trying to meet all the regulations. The only thing that we we refused to do, and um, the jury is still out on whether I'm right or wrong. We didn't take on an equity partner. In in the licensure, it allows you to take on a 49% equity partner, right? And this way, that will give, especially the card applicants, there were only eight of us that won the card application first round. I was one of the first eight. And so, you know, um, um, if you take on an equity partner, give them 49% of your license, the normal protocol is they'll build out everything for you, deal with all the technical stuff, and all you do is just collect a check, you know, for the other 51%, you know, which, you know, dwindles down to whatever the percentage is from the business, you know. No one makes 51% profit. So whatever it is, 15 20%, then you're divvying that up. We didn't do that. We decided we're not going to do that. We're not going to take an equity partner. We're going to be the turtle and not the rabbit. And so we just plugged along, plugged along. We found a place and we put money down on the place, a couple of thousand dollars to lock it down. It was approved by the OCM. We were, we were all in getting ready to do our thing. And all of a sudden, I, found, I saw a building on Steinway Street. And it was an old Victoria's Secrets building. And... Um, Big building, and it sat right across the street from the only municipal parking lot on Steinway Street. And uh, I made an inquiry, made a phone call, cold call, met the family. I'm a pretty personable person. Um, uh, I met the family, met the, I met the grandson, and then I met the father. And, and then 
you know, um, we have a whole nother, we have to do another show. Anyway, beyond that, they, they love me. They were not selling the building. They don't sell property. This family does not, it's against their religion to sell property. Okay. But what they did was they said, we'll rent you the property. We'll rent you the building for $50,000 a month. That's a mortgage. I'm not renting no buildings for $50,000 a month. No way. Sell us the building. So anyway, I, we worked on them, worked on them. Long story short, uh, we had uh, a meeting with myself and one of our board members, Miss Elizabeth Kleinhands. Shout out to Miss Kleinhands. Um, and so she's a tough Jewish woman. Let me tell you something. She's like 80, 80 plus years of age. But when you sit down with her, Yo, you are dealing with a tough negotiator. She's tougher than anybody you know in negotiations. Anyway, she um she talked to the guy. She, and he says, well, and he says, oh, I can't do that. She says, well, then no problem. Call us when you're ready. I said, oh my God, this woman sunk the deal. She sink, she sunk the deal. And because uh, the guy was asked, well, well, how if we did sell you the building, how would you buy it? She says, we're buying the cash. What do you think? We're gonna buy a cash. What do you think we're gonna buy it? And I'm looking at her like, we are? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I don't hear from the guy for two weeks, two and a half weeks. Finally, he calls me back. And we re-engage in the conversation. Long story short, $200,000 over the, her offer for cash. We were able to buy the building. So we bought the building. Now, we've been saving money for 20 years. So now we are broke as a joke. Okay, we have no money, but we got this building. Okay, and um, we had a guy come in and say, "Listen, if you were to turn this into a cannabis shop, how much would you charge us?" One guy said one point five. One guy said one point two. I said, "Well, that's never going to happen because we don't even have. We ain't even got. We ain't even got the two. <laughs> never mind the one. We don't have the two. And so." Um, I said, man, and and then my board chair said to me, Ben said to me, he said, Bishop. Which, by the way, shout out to Ben for connecting us. Yes, yes, yes. And Ben said to me, he said, Bishop, I've known you a long time. This is the most riskiest thing I've seen you do. He said, but you know what? I'm going to rock with you on this. He said, but, I, you know, this is, this is, I've never seen you move this risky before. Now, the only other time I had a similar conversation with the board was when we opened up our credit union. So in 2010, we were chartered, but we were in the throes of getting chartered from 2005. During that time, we had the economic downturn. The whole banking industry blew up. I came to the board meeting and Ben said to me, Bishop, we are abandoning the idea of opening a bank now, aren't we? And I looked at the board and I said, ladies and gentlemen, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. The banking industry messed it up, but we're going to show them how to do it right. <laughs> who, who, I don't know what gave me the nerve to say that, but needless to say, the next year, 2010, we were chartered. First one chartered under the Obama administration. First one chartered in Queens in over 30 years. And the first one ever with low-income designation. So, I mean, you know... So we got the so we got we got the bank to work and and now we're going to get this ca the cannabis business to work. Let's go back to so you bought. I want to get back to the story and to you know where we are today, getting ready to open. So you buy a building, 
Buy the building. Buy the building against, you know, it seemed like this family was never going to sell odds. a building. Against all odds, you buy the building. What, what time so frame was this renovating. happening? Okay, you start renovating. What time frame, just to give viewers a, is this so, happening yeah, this so, summer so, or? Yeah, so this was like April. Okay, so it's April, so you closed, buy the building, the Victoria's Secret building. We closed in building. April. Okay. Yeah, we closed in April, and here's the thing. So we're trying to get the building, and once we get the building, and we got the guy, we closed on the building. This is funny. We closed on the building. I got the keys. I got the keys now. So I'm going to the building. I'm saying, holy smoke. There's an elevator in the building. There's fire alarms, sprinklers, this, that, that. I said, holy, I think I done bit off too much, more than I can chew. But anyway, beyond that, we went in, started cleaning out the building. You know, it was, it was horrid, but we went in and started cleaning out the building, demoing the building, and doing everything on our own. And um, again, we had several estimates to build out the space, and we decided not to go with those estimates. We decided not to get an equity partner, and we've been doing it on our own. We've been doing what I call the urban hustle to build out the space and uh, we, don't, we didn't have a professional designer. We didn't have none of, no professional mark, nothing, 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 nothing. We just did it. And so what you see when we open Urban Weeds on Steinway Street on, uh, can I say when? Yeah. yeah. Okay. On uh, January 12th is our soft opening. And uh, uh, you'll see that is the work of regular people on the ground, with an entrepreneurial mindset, limited resources, but an unlimited vision. That's what you're going to see. So I pray that the patrons and the customers that come in, they'll take all the mistakes and all the stuff they see and love, if they see any of that, and that they'll know that all of the wood in that shop, I'm not going to give it away, but all of that was repurposed. That's how we saved so much money. We saved hundreds of thousands of dollars because we repurposed the wood. I think my environmentalists will love this. I mean, we did, we repurposed everything. So we reused it. And, you know, now the shop is, is ready to go. Just a couple of little more tweaks. And uh, just the other day we had our inspection from OCM. We passed with flying colors. I was so worried that we would not, you know, how nervous I was Carson. Yep. And uh, I didn't know what to expect, but they said, man, this shop looks fabulous. They said, you did a fabulous job. And let's talk a little bit about the team. So you have people from, you have people from Urban Upbound who have been going about the urban hustle, and you've also made some great hires, including a new general manager. So I'd love to talk about when you think about hiring and building this team, of course, uh, Bankst and our team has been working hand-in-hand hand with you. What you know what you look for when you're hiring and you're building out this team specifically with Desiree the manager and some of the other folks that we've started to hire for yeah yeah and and let me just say this too like we are what I would call workforce professionals we place about 2,000 or so people in jobs every single year maybe more um, and so we're workforce workforce professionals but and by the way folks just so that you know um, stay tuned on that because we're going to be doing some work with urban upbound, urban weeds to place people into jobs in cannabis. So there's more to come in our next episode. We'll just give you a little teaser there, right, Bishop? Yes, yes. But we had, I was frozen. I had no idea how to hire a bud tender, where to get bud tenders from and whatnot. And so I was frozen in time. And so thank God, my board chair said to me, Bishop, 
I want you to meet someone. And I said, who? He said, I want you to meet somebody. Don't worry, I want you to meet somebody. They're going to help you with what you're doing. And he introduced me to you. If he did not introduce us to Vanks, I probably would not be this far advanced. Because, in other words, you guys are masters in this space. You've already figured it out. So you shaved off like two or three months of me interviewing meticulously and whatnot because we look for a very specific type of person to work at Urban Upbound, and I will be just as meticulous for Urban Weeds. And so Vanks came in and got started and whatnot, and seems like almost in a week you guys had like 30 butt tenders for us to to talk to and interview and train and whatnot and so on and so forth. And the biggest catch, and I have to credit you guys for this, I don't know how you did it, um, Desiree Suku. I know she doesn't mind me saying it. Um, she's our new general manager. And um, you guys found her, recruited her, and brought her in. And I'll just say she was cannabis ready. Cannabis ready. And um, and she is an exciting African-American woman uh, who I believe the sky is the limit. And um, yeah, so... One of the things that you know we're we're doing, we might not be able to beat the MSOs, but what we're going to do is this: we're going to double and triple down on customer service and hospitality. We're going to have bud tenders on the floor at all times with iPads. Anybody that comes in that store, they're going to have a personal shopper with them to talk with them, and even if they don't buy anything, they're not going to leave that store empty-handed. Now. The OCM has regulations. I can't give you samples of weed. But you're going to get a pen, a pin, a T-shirt, a hoodie, a hat, a pair of gloves, anything. You're not going to leave the store empty-handed. We want you to have an experience. We want you to have education. And we want you to have elevation. And so we believe that it's going to be a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous time in the store. Absolutely is. And hopefully th- this might be the first of many stores you open. And so this is this is the beginning of an incredible journey. If people that are listening want to come to the, the soft opening on the 12th, where can they find you? Yes. So we're located right in the heart of Astoria, 3135 Steinway Street in between 31st mm-hmm. Avenue and Broadway. And don't worry about parking. We have the only municipal parking lot right across the street. Okay? And you can use your smartphone to put the 25 cents in or the 50 cents for the meter and whatnot. It's just a great, 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 great convenience for the store. So we'll be opening at 10 a.m. on January 12th. It's a soft opening for family and friends. And wink, wink. All of you guys are my family and my friends. So come out and be with us on January 12th, 3135 Steinway Street, Astoria, New York. And if you're looking for a job at Urban Weeds, you can go to vanks.com slash urban weeds. And we are taking in applicants. We know that as the store continues to grow, we're going to continue hiring, continue building out the team. It's an incredible opportunity to join a cannabis company in New York where you, you will be working with, in my opinion, the best team 
in New York. So if you're looking to go have an amazing experience, you have to visit the location. If you're looking for a great job, we would love to talk to you. And Bishop, I'm excited to come see the store myself next week and spend some time with yes. you next week and you know work on our other project that we'll be announcing to people in the coming months. Yes, yes, I'm excited. I can't wait till you get here, Carson. Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.